0: Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. We'll read the chapter in its entirety this morning as we continue working our way through this gospel together. Chapter 2, Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth, on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from the new, pardon, pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look what they're doing. What is, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. It's not uncommon to have a conversation with someone about the reality of God and the gospel and the need to repent and turn to Him and to serve Him. It's not uncommon that the response then would be something like, I've been thinking about that or I've thought about that. I'm, I'm planning to do that. There are these things that I'm, I'm going to get sorted in my life and then I'll be ready to make those kinds of changes. Then I'll be ready to make decision, a decision like that. the The problem with that kind of thinking is that sinners I say it's a problem on the one hand it's a problem to think like that the reality of the situation is not a problem at all in that sinners do not need to do something first in order to become worthy recipients of God's love there is no preparation that a sinner must make in order to be accepted by God in fact every effort that we might make would be in vain. If it were possible to be further away from God than unrepentant sinners are, then every effort made would place us even further away from God. I say it's not possible to be further away because if you have not repented, anyone who has not repented before God, is an in, there is an infinite distance between you and the one who has created you for his glory. There's no preparation that can be made. We see that in the passage today with Jesus' interaction with Levi, who we also know as Matthew, Matthew the Gospel writer. It's also helpful from the outset to point out that in this text, Jesus is in no way at all condoning a sinful lifestyle by eating with sinners, right? There are those who will take this passage and say, look, there's Jesus partying with the pagans. That's not what Jesus is doing. Rather, he is sitting with them in order to declare to them the hope of their transformation, He is sitting with them to say, you do not have to remain as you are. There's hope for you, just like your friend Levi, who has invited you here today. It's worth us considering as we look at this story, these couple or few stories in the Gospel of Mark this morning, specifically this one of Jesus calling Levi, going to Levi's house, and sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners. Do we, in our life, generally speaking, look more like Jesus in this setting? Or do we look and act more like the scribes and Pharisees in this setting? Or do we look more like Levi's invited guests in this setting? Now, it's really a terrible habit to read yourself into a Bible passage, so don't do it more than just considering the question that I put out there, and we'll come back to it in the end, I think. Here in the Gospel of Mark, we find this man, Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We find that his life, divinity robed in flesh, is remarkable. Just wonderful to see him living before us, as it were. The, the glimpses that Mark gives, though they're, they're rapid, they're fast moving, he doesn't give us a lot of detail, but they are still glorious glimpses into this wonderful man's life. It's my hope that as we continue looking at him, gazing at him seeing these glorious glimpses of His life, that we will, as a result, be changed. Gazing at His glory, being changed from one degree of glory into another, into the likeness of this one whose life is recorded on the pages of the Scriptures. This one whose spirit is in and among His people and illumines us to the truth of His Word, bringing about conviction in order that we might pursue Him more fervently, in order that we might seek to imitate him and follow him wholeheartedly. As we consider verses 13 through 22 together this morning, I've split it into five points. I'm making up for last week. So. there are really six points, but verse 13... It's just going to have to be an introduction when we get to it in just a minute. First point, verse 14, sitting in sin. Point two, second half of verse 14, called by Christ. Third point, verses 15, 16, and 17, sitting with sinners. Also the title this morning, sitting with sinners. Verses 18, 19, and 20, fasting for what? And the final two verses, 21 and 22, parabolic pictures, patching cloth and pouring wine. So our passage begins with verse 13. If you're using the New American Standard, you probably see that it's more closely connected there with verses 1 through 12, than it is with 14 and following. It's really not closely connected with either one, but it works as a helpful transition between these two stories of the paralytic being healed by Jesus and Levi being called to follow Jesus. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Jesus went out again alone, getting away from the crowds, not because he didn't like people, not because he was a recluse, not because he was an introvert. Those of us who have those characteristics would like to claim that it's Christ in us. That's not what we see here going on with Christ. He needed some time, to, he needed to spend time with his Father. And so he went out away from the people again to spend time. With his Father. We, we see it happening again and again. Jesus seeking to be alone with his Father. And all the people, verse 13, all the crowd, literally the crowd was coming to him. Yet again, there's something in this man that is like a magnet. People are attracted to him because of the news that he's spreading, because of the glad tidings that he's sharing, because of the miraculous deeds that he is accomplishing. There's an attraction and people are coming. They want to know more. And so what does he do? He takes advantage of the situation. The last phrase, and he was teaching them. Always, again and again. We saw this when the crowd comes into Peter's house at Capernaum. What what does Jesus do when the crowd gathers? He's teaching them. He's taking full advantage of sharing the truth of The Messiah who has come, who is headed to the cross, and the good news of salvation for sinners, time and again. The notoriety and fame of Jesus is spreading rapidly. He goes out for a walk on the beach, and people come. And his notoriety and his fame is only matched by the spread of opposition against him. We see that in the passage again today like we did last week. Sitting in sin, as Jesus passed by, verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Think about the picture with me for a moment. Jesus can't get away from the crowds, but not everyone is coming. Levi is completely disinterested in this man, and understandably so. Levi was a Jew, he was born a Jew. He's no longer allowed into the synagogue because of the vocation that he has picked up and he is completely content he's not just wandering around with other sinners he is seated even as jesus comes with the crowds he would have known who jesus is he would have heard what had hap- what has been happening and he sits he doesn't join the crowd he's not listening to the teaching he has zero interest he's content in his sin he's happy on his way to hell And he's just sitting, we might say, like someone says, in the seat of scoffers. He's a tax collector, sitting in the tax booth. The way that you get a job like this, the, the, the privilege of being a tax collector during this day, re- regions were bid out to the highest bidder. So Levi, Matthew, would have been the highest bidder in order to get taxes from all the people who lived in a certain region or all the goods that were traveling through a certain region. And so the Roman government, which is a problem, right? He's a Jew. He's working for the Romans. You can see the issues coming up with that kind of lifestyle, that kind of job. Quotas were set by the Roman government and everything over and above what the Roman government required was profit. And there were zero regulations. It's not like the Romans said, feel free to charge 10% more for your commission and you can keep that and that will be okay. But it was, anything was fair game. So Levi owned the franchise for Capernaum. He owned the Roman tax franchise for Capernaum. And that's why he's sitting there, in order to collect the taxes, the dues. Tax collectors were traitors. They probably still are, but... (laughs) As a result of taking up this vocation, he would have lost his Jewish identity. He would have given up social status. He was basically, basically an extortionist. Tax collectors were a disgrace in their own family. They were the lowest of the low in their society because they were notoriously corrupt. They were almost always dishonest. They were rip-off artists. They were good at what they did. They took advantage of everyone. Taxes in their day was a lot like our day. It's... You know, you hope you get it right, and if you get it wrong, you'll hear from them later. But he had figured out a system, not just Levi, but all the tax collectors figured out a system to rip off the people. They were unclean. They were considered unclean. Again, remember, he's raised as a Jew, but he's in contact with the Gentiles often because he wants their money. So he's unclean due to the contact with the Gentiles and the outsiders. They were so low, considered to be such on a low level of society, they were disqualified. Tax collectors were disqualified from being a witness in court. Just like murderers were. I mean, they were government workers. Again, some things haven't changed a ton. Now, Levi's just sitting, content, happy, being a traitor, being an extortionist, being dishonest, being corrupt, being a disgrace, being unclean. But it's remarkable to see that it's this man, of of all the crowds that are following Jesus on the seashore, of all the people that are in the crowd that is following him. It's Levi that Jesus pinpoints. It's Levi that Mark has written about. I mean, we have to agree, considering who Levi was as a tax collector in that day, that he is not exactly the most likely influencer going forward. Jesus is just not calling him to salvation, right? This man's going to be a disciple momentarily before the day's over. Jesus has not picked out the influencer in the crowd. He's gone after the most unlikely person. I mean, Levi is not the strongest candidate for winsomeness. There's no way he had a good personality. There's not a very high hope that Levi is going to be a very contagious leader. Jesus didn't see something in him. I mean, all the people were following Jesus. Levi's sitting by himself in the tax booth. In fact, most of the people, if they're walking along, would have moved to the other side of the road, hoping that Levi didn't recognize them, especially if they owed him something. But not Jesus. He passes by, he sees Levi, and he sees more than a traitor, more than an extortionist. More than a disgrace. More than someone who's marked by corruption and dishonesty. More than someone who's just unclean. He passes by, he sees him, and he calls him. And Levi followed Christ. Verse 14, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, to Levi, the tax collector, follow me. And Levi got up and followed Jesus. Point two, it was completely unthinkable that a tax collector would be one of Jesus' disciples. You remember back in chapter one where Jesus touches the leper, that was unthinkable because it would have normally, under the rules and regulations, made him unclean. But now he's gone a bit further. It's even more unthinkable that Jesus would say to a despicable tax collector, follow me, than it would be to touch a leper. Think about it. The leper actually had no choice about his condition. So he can have some pity on the leper. But the tax collector, Levi, he volunteered to be a rotten scoundrel. He signed up for it. He willingly walked into the profession knowing what was required, knowing what would be lost. And he was content with that. In the same way that Jesus was not concerned about being contaminated by the leper. He's not worried about being corrupted by tax collectors and sinners either. He's not worried about a reputation of tax collectors following him or eating and dining with them, as we'll see in just a moment. But again, imagine the scene here, walking along the seashore as Jesus calls Levi to follow him. It's jaw-dropping astonishment when we come to grips with the reality of that day and the situation and what a tax collector was and who Jesus is. A lowlife like Levi is called by Christ to follow him. While unquestionably everyone, most everyone, if not everyone else in the crowd, is wishing for Levi's demise. Maybe this Jesus who has been working miracles before us is going to work a miracle here and get rid of this guy and get rid of the Romans altogether. And Jesus doesn't do that at all. He says, follow me. He saves him. He makes him a disciple. Now, The call is unthinkable. The call is astonishing that Jesus would say, come and follow me to to one so despicable, such a low life like Levi. But the response, do, do you not find that that's even more hard to wrap your mind around? Someone who is living that kind of life, who was willing to be described by being a traitor and an extortionist and a disgrace and dishonest and corrupt and unclean. Remember, he signed up for it. He's willingly doing it. He, he's made no attempt that Mark records here, nor do the other gospel writers, that he's made any attempt to leave this. He's, he's happy and content and he's sitting in his sin. And he gets up. Jesus says, Follow me. And he gets up and, and he walks away. He's not shoveling all the cash in the pocket in his pockets. Not trying to carry it away with him. He just walks away from it. Just like the fishermen did their boats and nets previously. Levi was busy collecting taxes as the fishermen had been fishing. When Jesus said, follow me. This divine, effective, irresistible call of Christ. The choosing of the unlikely. Of the undeserving. If you belong to God this morning, this call that you see happening here in Mark chapter 2 of Jesus saying, follow me. If you belong to Christ this morning, this call has come out to you. It would not have been audibly. You may have heard it audibly, but it wasn't Jesus. (laughs) But Christ has called every one of his own. Now, the Scriptures talk about a couple of different callings. There's a general call that goes out to everyone. Some would be through creation. Some would be through the preaching of the gospel. When the folks go to campus this afternoon and share the gospel and preach the gospel, that's a general call that's going out. It is the way, the primary way in which God has deemed that his word go forth is through the mouths of his people through the lives of his people so there's a general call that goes out that is not effectual it doesn't affect anything eternal in the soul but but this call of christ that if you belong to him you've been called by him He has said to you, follow me, and it's an irresistible call. You can't refuse him whose hand has reached out to rescue you as a brand from the burning. You cannot, you will not want to say no to this one who loves you with an everlasting love. Who sets your feet upon the rock, plucking you from the miry muck. This divine, effective, irresistible call that went to Levi has gone to every child of God for all time. This is encouraging. If we are willing to not let our minds get in knots about how it all happens and believe what God's Word says, this is wonderfully encouraging because it removes any kind of despair with regard to our own soul or the souls of those that we love. Because if Levi is eligible, the traitor, the extortionist, the disgrace, the corrupt, dishonest, unclean one who is categorized with murderers, if Levi is eligible, everyone is eligible. If Levi can't say no, No one can and no one will. Your position in life, your shady reputation, your miserable past, none of these are a liability when it comes to receiving and responding to Christ's call. It is effective and irresistible. Now this display by Jesus of open acceptance of sinners... Is appalling to the Pharisees. How does it affect you? How are we affected by this wide armed welcome of notoriously filthy sinners? Jesus doesn't stop there, he doesn't just say, Follow me. Let's continue in verse fifteen. Point three: sitting with sinners. And it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus said to Levi, follow me. Jesus ends up at Levi's house, which causes a question for us. Who's following whom? Jesus said, follow me. And then he proceeds to go to Levi's house. And these scribes of Pharisees, or scribes and Pharisees, continue to show up. If you remember, when the paralytic was lowered down, there was reasoning within their hearts and minds that Jesus, the All-Knowing One, exposed and revealed to them. Now, they've gone a bit further, and they're willing to voice their complaints, not just reasoning in their minds, but they voice their complaints to Jesus' disciples that are on hand. These are Pharisees. They have a negative connotation in our minds, and they've earned it rightfully. The word itself is derived from a word that means separated one. In a very real sense, they're separatists. Their goal is to keep their distance from people who are not like them. They're avoiding closeness with anyone who may tarnish their reputation in any way. Which is why they ask the question, why? Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Why, verse 16? Because they're needy. And because they know it. The Pharisees are needy. We might even argue that they're more needy than the sinners and the tax collectors because they are oblivious to their need, completely unaware of the depth of depravity that exists within them. Now, we've covered what tax collectors are. We've discussed that already. They are despised social pariahs. But who are these sinners? Notice the question. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Who is a sinner to the Pharisee? anyone who does not take the pharisees rules as seriously as they do so they're determining sure the people who were there that day were sinners but the way that the question is asked what the pharisees mean is why is jesus eating with people who are spiritually lower than we are who aren't as serious as we are, why is Jesus spending time with the wicked tax collectors and those who just don't quite measure up to our own standards? And here's what the Pharisees are ultimately doing. Not directly, but certainly indirectly, calling Jesus himself a sinner as they inquire about his eating and drinking with the collected lowlife of Capernaum. Doesn't he know who they are? Is he okay with who they are? Is he a sinner as well? They know better. The reasoning in their hearts and minds was exposed in the, in the previous story with the healing of the paralytic. But here's Levi, who was sitting in his sin, who is now sitting with Christ, who is seated among sinners. What created this transition? What's the difference between point one and point three, to put it very pointedly? (laughs) Levi is sitting content in his sin. Levi is sitting with Christ, and Christ is seated among sinners. It's the calling of Christ. It's his gracious selection of Levi and his very intentional grace being shown to Levi's contemporaries. Here's Jesus' answer. They didn't ask Jesus. They asked his disciples. But Jesus heard them and said, verse 17, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, But those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are okay and he didn't come to help them, right? No, not at all. The Pharisees aren't healthy, they are spiritually sick, spiritually dead. They are so sick. There's not a chance that they're healthy. That's not what Jesus is communicating here. Jesus is actually speaking their language to them in order to make his point. They think that they're not sick. Therefore, they're without hope. If they were to recognize the need that they had, if they were to recognize how spiritually inept they were, they would be asking Jesus not, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? But why not ask us to follow you? Here we are. We want to follow you. Jesus has come for those who recognize and know that they need him. And Levi fits this bill. Others at the reception, these tax collectors and sinners, likely do as well. The Pharisees, the scribes, they certainly do not fit this bill. They do not recognize and know that they need Christ. I find it fascinating here to notice from Levi's perspective that there's no shame noted in a couple of different directions. His tax-collecting friends, his sinners who are his friends who are in his house that day, he's not ashamed to come bebopping in with Jesus. He's not ashamed of this one who has saved him. Not in the least bit. At the same time, It doesn't appear that it's affecting him that he's bringing the Holy One of God, the sinless one, into such a filthy scenario. There's no shame that his friends are sinners. He brings Jesus right into their midst because he knows their need. He knows very well what he has just experienced in his own heart, and he has confidence that Jesus has the ability and the willingness to accomplish the same things in the life of of his contemporaries. And then there's a bit of a harsh transition that Mark is famous for. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, this question could have very well come up right on the backside of the meal at Levi's house, given that they were sitting and feasting, and John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they're they're bothered by that because they see Jesus' disciples there eating, and so the question comes to Jesus. It's interesting to note, I alluded to it last week, I've referenced it already, but these Pharisees initially were just reasoning in their minds, and then they're willing to muster up a little bit more, and go and talk to Jesus' disciples. But here now, like they're willing just to go straight to Jesus. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, verse 18, Mark chapter 2. And they came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Fast. He asked them a rhetorical question, and he also answered it for them. But the days will come, Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, up until this point, it I found it interesting this week to note that there was a single fast per year that was commanded by the law of God, and it had to do with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement As you know, was one of the greatest pictures of the cross being promised and looked forward to. However, the Pharisees and other religious people had assumed many more fasts and added them to their calendar as well. By the time of the that the New Testament is being lived out, by the time of Jesus, these where we're looking at here, Pharisees. We're fasting every Monday and Thursday, and it had little, if anything at all, to do with the Day of Atonement. In fact, they wore it quite proudly as a badge of personal piety. You'll remember the story from Luke 18. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. You remember what the Pharisee said next? I fast twice a week. Listen to me, God, because I'm not like them. I even do this that you didn't even require. I made up my own rules and I'm keeping them. Well, that must be difficult. (laughs) One fast had been commanded by God at this point, by his law. What we see here from Jesus is that there's a time and a place for everything, including fasting. But what Jesus points out here is that now is not that time. Why do your disciples not fast, Jesus? Because now is not the time to fast. He doesn't even go to the trouble to point out that the Pharisees probably shouldn't be fasting and that John's disciples probably shouldn't be fasting. He doesn't even deal with that. He just simply says, fasting at a feast is absurd. And right now, The bridegroom is with you. I am with you, Jesus says. He's alluding more so than he has previously at this point to he he himself being the Messiah and that he was headed to the cross. Fasting at a feast is absurd, Jesus makes clear. Also, noting that spirituality is not connected to being uncomfortable, Jesus is not in any I mean, he's just doing away with that whole mindset that if, if you do difficult things to your body, then somehow it makes you more spiritual. If we look at this section and just read the pertinent verses regarding fasting, it's not mandated, nor is it forbidden. Jesus is simply answering them with regard to their misunderstanding. And for those of them with ears to hear, they will recognize that they are likely fasting for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives. There are many wrong ways to fast. Many would assume that fasting would ward off demons, but there's no scriptural backing for that some may fast as a meritorious act of self-renunciation which is dangerous others would fast as an attempt to impress god luke 18 reveals that that is a danger or to exalt oneself before others these all contradict other spiritual principles Jesus here is not offering a lesson on when to fast, when not to fast, or how to fast, except to say that it makes no sense to fast in the middle of a feast. And when Jesus is with his people, it is time for a feast. And he will go away. He was pointing to the cross. That's what he's alluding to. And there will be a time. But the glorious thing for Christians is that we don't live in this perpetual fast of Jesus being in the grave. We don't live in the perpetual gloom and seeming hopelessness of Christ being buried. He had to be buried. And in being buried, he carried our sins as far from the east as from the west. But he was raised again. The life of a Christian is not doom and gloom. It is joy inexpressible and full of glory because Christ has been raised from the dead, because he ascended on high, because he sits enthroned in the heavens. Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them through the crucifixion, and then they'll fast in that day, Jesus said. And, And Mark just continues on with these pictures in parable form. Verses 21 and 22 no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment otherwise the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear results i mean we can picture that e- even in our day of pre-shrunk fabric and clothing we can still imagine some of us are old enough some of you are old enough <laughs> Uh, To remember when everything wasn't pre-shrunk, and you can imagine taking something that had already been through the wash and the dryer and had shrunk. All it was going to shrink, and then you put something, imagine if you put something new on it and stitched around the edges, and then it went through the shrinking process. It's just going to rip away from everything. That's, That's the patching cloth picture that Jesus is portraying here. The new fabric of Jesus cannot be interwoven with the tired fibers of old religion and traditions. Christ came as the mediator of the new covenant. He didn't come to patch up an old system. He's not simply a reformer of the old. He is, on the other hand, not a reformer of the old, but a transformer of all things. He's not come to make concessions with the old way of religion. He's not come to allow for accommodations, nor to make compromises with the old. He's come to make all things new. And he continues, no one puts new wine into Old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. The new life that Christ brings is ever expanding like new wine would be. The gases coming out as it ferments. And this ever-expanding life that Christ brings cannot be contained in the brittle inflexibility of old religion and traditions that's what Jesus is saying here with these quick parables no one puts new cloth on old it will rip no one puts new wine in old wine scans it will all be lost These are not mere household tips. As true as they are, Jesus is not offering home economics. He is offering an emphatic, you cannot fit me into your religious box. You Pharisees, you scribes, you Jews, you religious elite, you tax collectors, you sinners. You cannot fit me into your religious box. Now, the Old Testament law is not the old that Jesus is referring to, but rather the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had altered the law beyond recognition. And novelty is never an acceptable way in Christianity, ever. Listen to to God in Jeremiah 6. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But in the days of Jeremiah, they said, we will not walk in it. May it not be said of us. May it be said of us that we will walk in the ways of the scriptures, recognizing the newness of Jesus and what he requires. Jesus was not the missing link to their manufactured religion. He was not the long-lost puzzle piece to their concocted creation. They could not receive the Messiah without being made new themselves. Jesus is not an add-on to our lives. No matter how clean the life may look, no matter how religious your life may be, he's not an add-on. He makes all things new. You cannot be a Christian and maintain all your old ways of life. Mixing things that are essentially different, new wine, old wineskins, new cloth, old cloth, mixing things that are essentially different is not an option because it is not possible. Jesus came to make all things new. He came to save, and he knew our need. He knows our need. He saw our need. He sees our need. He pitied our need, and he pities our need. He came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. Did you see yourself in the story? Do you look like Christ warmly welcoming sinners? Do you look like the scribes and Pharisees turning your nose up at those christ is saving? Or do you look like Levi's invited guests and you're all ears wanting to hear more about this Jesus of Nazareth who came to save sinners? Or you can back up a little bit further in the story and maybe you find yourself like Levi just sitting. Maybe walking in the counsel of the wicked, or standing in the path of sinners, or even sitting in the seat of scoffers. If that's true, Christ has come, and he's come for you. He's come to say, follow me. He's come to say there is hope, not just for sinners like you, but especially for sinners like us. Are you sitting in your sin? Are you sitting above those in sin? Christ has no time for spiritual elitist. He came for sinners. Now, we're not likely Pharisees from a philosophical standpoint, but we are too often prone to being Pharisees from a practical standpoint. May God help us to not be Pharisee-like from any standpoint. Before Jesus went to the cross, he's praying to the Father on behalf of his own, and he said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. It, you can hear even there the distinction, distinction that Jesus is making. I'm not asking that my people be separatists. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one and the evil within the world. We must not isolate ourselves from the world. Our problem as God's people is not out there. It's bad out there. But our biggest problem is not out there. Our biggest problem is right here. Keep them from the evil one. We must not isolate ourselves from the world. At the same time, we must not assimilate in the world. We must keep ourselves in the love of God, living unto him, burning bright with gospel truth, allowing our good works to be seen in order that others, too, might worship the God who has saved us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. How wonderful is this man who loves his own, who loves us. God, we pray that you will press the truth of your word into our hearts, that we would forsake any spiritual elitism, that we would forsake any Pharisaical identity, and that we would wholeheartedly seek to follow Christ. God, for those who identify with the tax collectors and sinners who know you not, call them to yourself. Save them, we pray. Make them your own. It is our desire as your people to follow you wholeheartedly. We beg you, God, that you'll help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.